gets old he is a blooming good talent isn't he he really is beautiful voice thank you Dwayne thank you Dwayne for donating your uh, time your talent your words your music and that massive smile of yours peace and love bro uh, hey hello so it's our first episode it is indeed and thank you for joining us welcome to the how to die happy podcast it is our first episode it is hello everybody and likewise thanks f- from me um so how to die happy bringing you stories and practical utilities for the arts of living and dying well mm. living and dying well what Live, discuss living and dying well indeed what and do you think, think about that I, I love it i think it's great i hope people will get something out of it so Thank you, folks, for your, your precious time. We know you have lots of options when it comes to podcasts. We, we hope. What do we hope, Martin? Um, well, I suppose what we hope we can do is bring together loads of modalities and methodologies from uh, people all around the world, um, arguably far more smart than you and I, Christopher. <laughs> Uh, certainly far more qualified <laughs> far more qualified indeed <laughs> definitely far more qualified to discuss uh stuff about um about life and about um well-being particularly well-being so the the common thread in this whole thing uh is around the t- the 10 common deathbed regrets and the intention for for us and for our guests and the collective of amazing people who have come around like literally just gravitated towards this mad idea very quickly i might add indeed <laughs> too quickly <laughs> too quickly too quick for some of us in this room for the producer <laughs> um i think the the collective intention is that we can just help people consider some some ways some opportunities to reframe to maybe unlearn maybe to heal um methodologies around awareness um but it's not just about the mind. It's about the mind, the body, and the spirit. You know, one of the, uh, I think the number one top, I don't, actually, I don't, I'm not sure if these are prioritized in, in reality, but um, one of the, the, the top 10 re- deathbed regrets is I wish I'd taken better care of my body. Mm-hmm. So we're going to cover that too at some point with some people. Uh, it's never ending, this, this thing, I mean, you know, what, what we're trying to do here. So, Well, it is a journey. It is our it is our journey, and we welcome you to to join us mm. on this journey, and we want you to be part of it. So we've got our first episode. Who do we have, Martin, for our first episode? We have a wonderful man um, based in London by the name of Liam Farquhar, and Liam is a legal psychedelic guide. I, was, I mean, I think I, obviously it's nice to be able to say that. It's good for him to be able to say that. I I think that sort of strips out some of the wonder around what he does. I would like to say he's more like a modern day shaman. Not sure how he'd feel about that. In fact, I did say this, didn't I? You did. I'm not sure how he felt about it. I don't know how he felt about it either. I think that he's a very humble guy and yeah. he very much believes in the idea that he is there to support 
an individual and healing themselves. Truth. But then that's so what a shaman does It is well. what a shaman does. So I think it's perfectly accurate to call him a modern-day shaman. Yeah. So, and what does Liam do? He works with uh, psychedelics, um, guiding people um, of all walks of life, having experienced all manner of trauma, from major trauma to micro-traumas. Um, and uh, he helps them to heal themselves. Hmm. So what did we discuss in the show then? Because we did lots of stuff. We we did. We discussed trauma. Obviously, mm-hmm. that was the kind of the theme of the show. Mm-hmm. We discussed the the importance of of setting the right kind of intentions when you go into a, a therapeutic setting like this. Mm-hmm. He talked about the distinction between healing and and him being very careful to frame this as a healing experience as opposed to, I forget exactly how he characterized it. But. Well, I think he was keen to say at no point in, in any of this do we say, we're going to heal you. Right. I'm going to heal you. Right. Um, because um, rightly so, he identifies that everybody's journey has been different. Everybody's journey to get here is different, but everybody's journey with plant medicines is different as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess he was super humble about that in a nice, uh, respectful way. Um, but what else did we talk about? Oh, we also talked about the um, the rise, this this sudden apparent exponential rise in interest and in regulation, but also in acceptance of psychedelics. Yes, uh, in the in uh, psychological treatment and therapy. Yeah, and the potential pitfalls, let's say, or downsides to large corporations mm-hmm. getting involved with this, and I think. What I really appreciated about Liam, and, and we talk about this in the show, is his ability to see both sides of it. He framed it in in the uh, case of two extremes: the the one being the, the hippies, and the other being the the capitalists. Yeah. To simplify this, and he said he can see, you know, <clears throat> pros to both. So anyway, yeah, I thought it was a, a great way that he framed that, and willing to explore the nuance in psychedelics being more mainstream, so to speak. Yeah. And the final thing uh, I recall we discussed uh, was the importance uh, through this whole thing of finding the right guide, Yes, one could say about any uh, healing, unlearning, uh, or self-awareness, personal development journey, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed it, too. It was a great first episode. I think it's a great introduction to the show. Uh-huh. I think it's a, a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts mm-hmm. and one that we wish to, to share with people. Mm. So what do you think? You want to jump into it? I reckon we just jump into it. So we hope you enjoy the first episode of uh, How to Die Happy. If you don't, listen to a couple more before you suck <laughs> us off. <laughs> we'll, we'll also have little uh, what we're calling chin wags in between the interview episodes. Yeah, so yeah. If you, yeah. If, not keen on the episodes. Maybe check out the Chinwags. Yeah. Bonus and, material. Well, I guess if you're not ready for an hour and a half of listening to he and I chatting to uh, leading authorities on uh, the in the in the territory of well-being, then yeah, you can just you can dip your toe in the water with a 10, 15, 20 minute chinwag, which will be um, I don't know what we're going to do with them. We're just going to pepper the week with them, maybe. Yeah. We're making it up as we go along. We we? are making it up as we go along. And for people that don't know what a chinwag is, I Ah. was one of them up until two days ago because the Brits have their own jargon. I think I need a dictionary hanging out with Martin sometimes. A chinwag is Uh, literally your chin moving, which means we're just talking. Exacto. 
with some funny, interesting, maybe introspective topics. We'll yeah. see. Yeah. But regardless, episode one, Liam Farquhar, psychedelic therapist? Guide. I think it's fair to say. Psychedelic guide. And therapist. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. Enjoy. Episode one, How to Die Happy Podcast. Let us know what you think. And I do, yeah, psychedelic integration. So helping people understand, process, get lessons and insights from uh, an intentional psychedelic experience and, you know, helping them kind of embed those into their lives moving forward. Um, and I also do the guiding as well. So I'm a psychedelic therapist guide um, and I bring people through a whole process that requires, you know, active participation before, during, after. Um, so we're working with psilocybin mushrooms, um, doing the, the prep uh, before and the integration after in London or on Zoom and then having the experience itself in Amsterdam where uh, psilocybin is, is legal. Do you, do you, when people get in touch with you, Liam, do, do you have a, do you have to do a, a bit of a job holding their hands to talk to them about psilocybin and its, its use throughout the ages and putting down misunderstandings and misinterpretation or, or are the lion's share of people contacting you saying, hi, I've done my research. I know what, I know what psilocybin, or I think I know what psilocybin can do for me. These are my issues. Uh, you know, let's go. There is some hand-holding, but yeah, most of the people who come to me are pretty well-informed, actually. Um, you know, there's this whole psychedelic renaissance happening at the moment, um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of information out there. Um, now in some of our very, you know, establishment publications, like The Economist did a, a leader with, um, I think this was how long ago? This is about a year ago, but they did, yeah, their, their lead story was on, uh, psilocybin mostly but psychedelics generally as well um, going through this whole like rescheduling process um, you know it's in like Business Insider and the FT you know all sort of kind of like pretty glowing um, reports about going to retreats and having very positive experiences and about the uh, yeah the, the benefits that, that these new uh, you know therapeutic approaches can have there's so there's you know there's a lot of great good information out there obviously michael pollan's book how to change your mind you know people in this space call it the pollinator effect had a huge um huge impact in in um yeah kind of like you know helping people i suppose yeah understand what the, the psychedelic renaissance is what that means but also sort of get over that uh, like hangover from the 60s and 70s you know the 60s and 70s were remarkable in many respects but um, it was also quite excessive and irresponsible in other respects as well so there's been a whole um, yeah kind of a, a reframing process that's, that's happening um, so when people come to me they are quite knowledgeable usually um, but there's still you know you still have to very much temper people's expectations you know, it's kind of framed as this big, like, healing uh, event. And, you know, part of my role is to really, I guess, remind people that it's not, it's, well, one, it's not just a single event. 
it's a whole process. You know, it's very different from uh, the biomedical model that we're used to, where you, you pop a pill every day that, you know, very conveniently is this sugar-coated pill that you pop each day, you know, convenient for the, the you know, the pharmaceutical companies that produce them. Um, and it, that's a kind of numbing, it's a passive process. You know, you're not really resolving anything. You know, these experiences, you're diving deep into the emotional route. Um, so it's, a, you know, and it requires, whereas the kind of biomedical model is passive, this is very active and requires, you know, active participation before, during, after. So I really have to, like, help people see that it's a whole process. It's not this single event. It requires work, um, you know, and... and these experiences, all they can really do really is to help like maybe expedite a process, to catalyze a process, but it's not the process in itself. Um, so I make that really clear up front. And obviously I, I have to make it clear as well that I'm not I'm not selling healing as well. Obviously, these, you know, these experiences can be quite healing and like medicinal, if you want to put it that way. Um but it's like no one, I think, can really, like no one should ever promise that. I think it's irresponsible to promise that because like the outcomes are so unpredictable. You know, we're working, working with the psyche here where, you know, the, the vastness of the psyche. So who knows what's going to happen? But yeah. I think um, I, 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 one of my considerations was around life hacking and biohacking obviously you'd be you'd be familiar with the concept and i i wonder how many people now are um sort of going okay right i, I read a i read an article i read a blog i watched fantastic fungi the documentary on netflix okay cool i'm pretty sure uh, a couple of uh, journeys on mushrooms are going to fix me hi liam can you fix me up please and heal me forthwith uh because i need some health hacking, psyche hacking uh, and I, I, it's a it's a valid point you make there. I, I talk about this a lot uh, to anyone who listen in terms of the healing journey and how everything's a hack now. You know, hacking is just everywhere, and because we've so attention poor and time poor, and we're going through these you know tiny devices, scrolling you know for the micro moment we have while we're sitting on the toilet or whatever. You know, okay, I need some healing. You know, is it in my feed? Um, and it's a totally different vibe when you when you really get into the healing journey. And, and people, I was actually on a podcast this morning um, uh, where the uh, the interviewer he's a, a therapist, um, a psychologist, so you know he, he gets it. And we were talking about the the idea that people need to really understand that healing is a process you know if you think about it take take me for example what am i 45 now uh, i only really kind of got super super well two years ago so it took me 43 years to really fuck it up <laughs> so am i expected to, uh, am i then expecting to to heal and to unlearn everything in six months in three months of course not you know it's a it's a huge process so i wondered how many people come at you like that and say hi give me the you know give me the give me the the hero's dose the, the magic mushrooms some people may take literally yeah and magically fix them yeah yeah and that's the culture we live in right we want quick fixes quick wins um and that's not how it works you know and that's another thing that i have to make quite clear up front as you said 
it's a journey. Um, so a big part of my process is helping people cultivate a sense of like compassionate curiosity to the journey, to the unfolding and, and helping people, yeah, be curious about that and, and enjoy all that, that, that journey. And, and it's like a dance, you know, it's like a tango, two steps forward, one step back. If, if those are the tango steps, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, that, <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that's all part of it. You know, our egos, our egos have a very different timeline to a natural healing process. Our egos are like now, 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 you know, um, and, you know, healing wholeness, um, it's a, you know, it's a lifelong journey. Uh, so, you know, let's see if we can like slow it down and, you know, relax and enjoy the ride as it were. So, yeah, so yeah, I have to make that clear. But then with the biohacking, yeah, I mean, that's another whole conversation of like people, uh, less so my clients, I think I, you know, I, uh, I put, like, have a certain pull towards certain types of people, I suppose. It's less kind of like hacking and, but that's a whole other conversation of like, you know, these, these substances, um, these sacred in many respects substances um, or the, like the process being sacred, being reduced to like, uh, productivity hacks with microdosing and stuff like that. Um, you know, how can we be more productive? How can we be better? Uh, you know, economic units in the in the current model. Um, so that's yeah, that's a whole like yeah other thing. And there's I suppose like tension between these like big experiences that are sacred can be, and then these yeah the microdosing which you know the the science around it for now is questionable whether it works or whether it's you know just a placebo effect i mean people say just a placebo effect but i think the placebo effect points to something quite profound this like inner healing intelligence within us but um yeah whether it's anything beyond that it seems like joy's out with microdosing for now have you uh have you read any joe Dispenza work uh haven't i've seen talks of his yeah haven't read anything as yet yeah he wrote he wrote something called you are the placebo joe Dispenza is a, a pretty pretty cool guy actually and he uh, i think he was a chiropractor wasn't he and he uh sustained a really bad back injury and uh, was told it was never going to heal himself or rather allopathic medicine was never going to heal him so so he, he, he got stuck straight into uh alternate therapies and meditation and um through this whole process just happened upon the concept of neuroscience neuroplasticity epigenetics a whole new world uh, and along that journey incidentally healed his spine walked again even though i think they told him he never would and so he talks about um, he talks about the placebo effect uh, with reverence, uh, as as you you inferred, because we do, um, and the science to show it, isn't there? We do have uh, the ability to heal our own bodies. I I know plenty of people who have done that right here. In fact, my meditation teacher here in Bali, he he healed his own uh, liver cancer through meditation. So yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm, um, yeah, you were talking about headlines and I, I, I saw a couple of headlines this week. I, I know you saw them as well, but I'm, I'm interested in what's happening right now in the world with this 
sudden media positioning, this warm, fuzzy media positioning around uh, around psilocybin. Because, of course, as we know, 60s and 70s, the West discovered mushrooms in a big way and LSD, obviously, and everyone went a bit nuts off the back of it, fighting against um, a, a hugely oppressive society in certain countries anyway. I know in, in the UK, uh, it was very stiff upper lip and... Um, class-based and so there was this explosion of, of people saying no nah, do you know what I'm not down with that i'm actually going to take some psychedelics and i'm going to i'm checking out of england and europe and the world actually i'm checking out this dimension <laughs> i'm going somewhere else for a little while uh and of course it was criminalized it was all criminalized and, and classified and um it's now all coming about again, isn't it? And I, I saw something uh, which I think you might have shared as well. It was on. It was a Newsweek cover. It said, "Magic mushrooms may be the biggest advance in treating depression since Prozac." Whoa! I mean, just the fact that they're equating magic mushrooms to Prozac. <laughs> what the? And this kind of points to something because we we were talking about healing. Maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about what it is that you are helping people to heal from. Speaking of the Prozac, so when we talk about depression and this this headline that Martin just read, magic mushrooms may be the biggest advance in depression since Prozac. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things wrong with that headline, but you see what I'm getting at. Yeah, definitely, and and of course, trauma is something that you you work with, isn't it, Liam? I I, I know uh, many people know my story, but I, I'm a I'm a recovered alcoholic and, and drug addict, so I was. Um, super addicted to cocaine, high functioning. Um, and we talk about alcoholism and addiction and, and people talk about it in different ways. Um, but my own experience was understanding and, and actually part of my healing process was in understanding that, that they were merely symptoms and, uh, they were symptoms of, of something, uh, far more deep as you, as you inferred earlier on. And I think this is something that I'd love for us all to talk a lot more about, and it's and it's talking about the root of the issue, the core. Why are we? Why do we have this mental illness? Why do we have this uh, this type of behavioural trait? Why are we narcissistic? Why are we abusive? You know, so on and so forth. And of course, it's it's all linked to trauma. Oh, I would love to. I mean, I've I've become such a trauma nerd. Honestly, like just. Any excuse, any excuse to talk about trauma. I, I just, I think it's, it's so fascinating. It's so, it's so beautiful in a way as well. The other side of it, obviously, is, um, you know, trauma can be, of course, like horrific. Um, and, you know, I kind of like sometimes question the kind of post-traumatic growth line because, you know, sometimes people don't reach that and sometimes it's just fucking awful, you know, but, I'll talk about trauma a little bit, I like how I frame trauma. So um, trauma for me is quite misunderstood. Um, you know, for me, it's anything that overwhelms our organism and our response to that overwhelm. So the overwhelm is anything that's too much, too fast, too soon, um, which means that, of course, trauma is those like big T traumas, like, uh, like war scenes, uh, rape, abuse, violence, stuff like that. But it's also little T traumas as well, like neglect, abandonment, um, you know, parents denying our realities, uh, bad breakups can be overwhelming, 
Um, and it's, you know, again, it's anything that overwhelms our organism. So it's, it's also physical, it's whiplash, it's uh, sports injuries, it's surgery as well. You know, the body can't differentiate between uh, rape and genital, um, yeah, genital surgery. It just sees it as an attack. Um, it's also very personal. So what overwhelms one person won't overwhelm another person. Um, and it's not just like for the individual, like it can be, you know, we can have cultural trauma as well, of course. Um, you know, just think about how overwhelming uh, systemic racism is, generations of it as well. Um, and trauma is also inherited. You know, we're, we're seeing through uh, the emerging science of epigenetics that uh, trauma is, yeah, it, it can imprint on our gene expression, like the wrapper around the DNA. And, um, yeah, it can be inherited. And we model our trauma. We, you know, we model the trauma from our parents because they had traumatized parents and their parents were traumatized, and, you know, all the way back. So we model trauma and we can actually, like, you know, inherit it on our gene expression as well. Um, and so there's the body keeps the score, which I think is back at the top of the New York Times bestseller list now. And it's an academic book on trauma. So I think there's, there's something quite telling when an academic book of trauma is, I mean, is that the number one uh, spot for like ages, I think. And now it's back up there. There's so many conferences on trauma at the moment. There's something very zeitgeisty about trauma happening, it seems. Um, but there's like, there's a line that I came across recently. So where like the body keeps the score, but the mind hides the score. And that's kind of like how trauma works, the mechanics of it. So, um, yeah, our, our, you know, our bodies. Yeah, would you like me to talk about like the, the mechanics of trauma? Because I think it's like it's that's for me the most interesting thing. Because I think it points to how we're actually we're actually like addressing trauma in in the wrong way. Um, do you want me to talk about that? For sure, and it, and also while you're on that, perhaps Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that writing, but essentially it's one in the same. So he's talking about how we store trauma in the body. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I come from more like Peter Levine's model. So Peter Levine is probably like, he's like probably arguably like the leading expert on trauma uh, at the moment. He's like your favorite trauma person's favorite trauma person. So he sees trauma, overcoming trauma is primarily a physiological process, not a psychological one. So what his genius is, is that he reminds us that we're mammals, right? So you know, we've got this very sophisticated, rational mind, this prefrontal cortex, but evolutionarily, that's quite a recent development. Um, but our whole organisms, you know, and the brain is just one part of that interconnected, interdependent series of systems. You know, our whole organism has evolved over millions of years to know how to instinctively heal like other mammals do. So he was observing mammals in the wild, and he was like, well, why do very few mammals exhibit traumatized behavior despite being constantly overwhelmed? Um, and he realized that they, they know how to instinctively heal. And their very survival, of course, depends on their ability to do that because they get overwhelmed and then, uh, you know, they need to return, you know, they, they need to return out and look for food and socialize and, you know, do all those things. And the way that they do it is they shake. They, they shake and tremor. 
So, and the whole mechanism behind that, you know, when, when mammals and us, whenever we're overwhelmed, we generate all of this fight or flight survival energy, adrenaline, cortisol, stuff like that. Um, and if we don't discharge it, like then or soon after, um, then we go into freeze and all of that energy gets stuck into the body. And that's where you have like dissociation, depression. In fact, like most of our unwanted symptoms, I think are better explained by that stuck freeze energy in the body. You know, and we don't shake and tremor because we've been socialized out of it because shaking has associations with uh, cowardice or being out of control. And we hate being out of control because that's a few steps away from death, you know? So like we actually, our rational mind, uh, gets in the way of a healing process often. So, you know, I, I see healing actually, the healing process as like really like tuning down that rational mind. So that's a very different approach to psychotherapy, which is very like, you know, staying with the story, saying, you know, trauma impacts the limbic system and it impacts the body. So you can't actually reach it by talking and thinking about it. You need a, you need a deeper thing. So that's the kind of like body keeps the score. And then the mind hides the score is... Is you know, like whenever we're overwhelmed, our you know protective parts of the psyche come in and make sure that we don't access the the, the memory of that traumatic event. Um, and that's where like internal family systems is a really powerful new therapeutic model, new 80s, you know, newish. Um, so internal family systems is a really powerful therapeutic model at accessing those parts and you know rather than being top down which is most psychotherapy which is like you know going in through the mind and all those protective stories that you just have to wade through wade through until you get to the emotional root uh internal family systems is is bottom up and you go in through the body which is a more direct route it seems into the emotional route and then you work with those protectors you you get them on side you witness them you know they kind of have their own personalities they need to be witnessed um, and then, you know, they, they learn that they can lower down their weapons and, and, uh, and grant access to the exiles that need healing. So for me, yeah, for me, like body, body keeps a score, mind hides a score. Somatic experiencing and internal family systems are really powerful ways of addressing those things. And like internal family systems, again, is a very different model from traditional psychotherapy because like, you know, the one, it's like, yeah, part. So it's the idea that we don't have like there isn't one singular Liam. I'm made of like a mind's body. So there's a multiplicity to it. A whole stadium full of parts, and they each have their own role and and personality. But at, at the core, kind of the central idea to internal family systems that you know everyone has a capital S self, this essential self that has this drive towards wholeness, healing, and happiness. It's very spiritual. You know, it's an evidence-based model, so they researched it and it works, but sort of under it's underpinned by very spiritual shamanic ideas almost. Um, you know, and I really love it when those worlds come together. Um, so this this self, you know, the most important relationship in, in internal family systems is is the relationship between the client and their own self. And that's the thing, you know, the self is what heals. Um, so yeah. Anyway. They're, they're both trauma-informed approaches, but I think, you know, when we define trauma as anything that overwhelms us, I think that that really broadens it out. And I think rather than seeing, like, people as sick and, you know, the therapist as being, like, the the, the, the healed one and the, the one who's, you know, that sort of power asymmetry, like, 
because we're all on that spectrum, right? We're all brick fucked up on the spectrum. Um, you know, I think it's much better. It's much better at seeing as like, you know, overwhelming things happened. Our minds and our bodies created very natural, understandable, automatic responses to it. And there's a way to undo it. And we're all kind of like just walking each other home, that Ram Das thing of like walking each other home, uh, having that understanding and helping us, helping, you know, each of us, uh, yeah, overcome our traumas. But I really, I really feel like we don't need an expert to analyze us. We need someone to support a process where healing comes from within. Um, yeah. So that's how I'm sort of framing it. I, I couldn't agree more. I think we, I feel we are our own healer and I, and I think we've, I don't know how it happened, but we've, uh, society's got to a point suddenly where we have this savior complex vibe going on where, where everybody's just waiting to be saved in any, uh, way, shape or form from all manner of things. We seem to be abrogating responsibility for, for our own sovereignty, our own, uh, health, our own mental health, physical health. It's all being, um, outsourced and, uh, Fundamentally, you're right. I, I think we have we have the tools within us to do all of those things and more. We've just forgotten them. And actually, you know, you you use the, you use the word shamanic. Actually, in our introduction, I, I referred to you as a as a modern day shaman. I hope you don't mind. Um, but I, well, yeah, I'm I'm somewhere like I'm somewhere in between a shaman and a and a clinical researcher, and I'm neither of those things. But maybe somewhere in the middle just just one one quick point on the yeah on on the healing coming from within us as well like it definitely does like we have this inner healing intelligence this capital S self and it, it and it is it is healing i would say we also do need others as well you know i think um like it's both and we are like in, extraordinarily interdependent and interconnected and i think sometimes like healing journeys can be a product of this like western individualism that sees it as this like lone range of path. And it's about you know, my healing, my path, my journey. And anyone who doesn't, anyone who gets in the way of it, be damned, you know? So I think that can go to the, that extreme. I think it's a, it's a, a fine line, isn't it? Ultimately, I think uh, my own experience anyway, I can't speak for anybody else, but my, from my own experience, I, actually I was helped on the ladder. I was helped on, on the ladder by, um, first by a therapist, a traditional therapist, um, but really my, my big sort of linchpin moment was help from my brother and, uh, and that sent me off on my path, but he, he didn't even really need to say it, but essentially when I began to lean on him too much, you know, cause he'd, he'd walked his path, he'd, he'd done his own, he, his, his own healing journey. It's not for me to share the details of that on this. Um, I would sort of lean on him and ask him, you know, more and more. And he saw, you know, I could see him sort of going, look, you know, I planted the seeds, but you got to walk your own garden, buddy. And, uh, and, and I, I really, really appreciated that to, that to this day. However, of course, as you open yourself up to that vulnerability, as you open your heart and mind, or actually put mind in the, in the back seat of the, of the earth rover and let consciousness do some, uh, interesting driving for a change, that's when you suddenly become open to to reaching out to a Liam or to a Chris or to a Martin or to a mum or a dad or a best friend. You know, I, I think certainly speaking from my own experience, had I not had a, a network of carers, if you like, uh, I think I probably would 
I probably would have died. And there was a time when I where I nearly killed myself. Um, and I think actually having a couple of people around me were, were the people that helped me not do that. They didn't know I was going to kill myself, but you know, it is what it is. This might be an interesting time just to. So we have a um, we have uh, as part of our team uh, a Manku priest, and he's uh, so it's a Balinese priest, and he's called Ketut. Uh, and we were talking to Ketut yesterday um, about trauma and people holding on to negative experiences in their mind. Yeah. Might be worth me sharing that. that. That is a perfect thing. Yeah, you really teed it up nicely, Liam, talking about getting out of your mind and being in the body and also connecting the, the worlds of modern therapy and, and scientific research with maybe ancient traditions and more shaman-type vibes. So, yeah, Katut, we specifically asked him, and this is going to be part of our weekly segment that's called, what are we calling it? Thoughts for Katut. I think it's called Thoughts for Katut. I think we're calling it Thoughts for Katut. But we asked him, we asked, what would you say to someone who's experienced a traumatic traumatic event and they can't stop replaying that event in their mind or they can't get it out of their mind? So, Martin, you want to go ahead and play his response? Here we go. Check it out. We'll talk about it. Thoughts from Katut. Yeah, the first thing I have to tell them is about the breathing and then try to be in your body. Like make your breathing guiding you that, bring your energy down, cutting your head, you know, because sometimes the energy stuck in that head because bring you worry, everything that make you more sick, you know, you should not get out from that. So that's where the more important is you to get out from that is through the breath and bring you down. And normally, if you do any walk, you can go to the nature, walking, just like a, bring you to the art. That is, I think, that's this is my advice. Ketut, he's like our Balinese Yoda. He has such a nice voice, doesn't he? The guy just uh, just exudes this wonderful feeling of like love and calm and peace. Yeah, he's a real special guy, isn't he? Yeah, you get it from his voice. There were there were some similarities, right? So he's saying, get out of your head. Uh, he obviously, uh, he, his go-to is meditation. So he's talking about the breath, get out of the head, breathe. And, um, uh, on the most basic level, breathe and get out into the nature, um, being two fundamental and, and very simple and doable things that anybody can do as, as part of a daily practice. We're going to talk about meditation every week on this podcast in some way, shape or form, because, you know, I practice it, um, religiously. And uh, many people I, I know do, and and I know for a fact it's super good for us all. So we're going to talk about it. But So what did you think about Ketut's perspective there? Some resonance? For sure, yeah. I mean, breathing, like breathing, there's so much healing potential in the breath, and we're not particularly good breathers, um, you know, especially when we're stressed or or overwhelmed, you know, we... <laughs> you know, breathe into the chest, very shallow breathing and yeah, deep abdominal breathing just helps to unlock that, you know, breathe. I really, like part of my process is coaching people how to breathe properly because it really is the thing that helps, uh, you know, support the experience. One of the things that helps support the experience, um, you know, when, when taking psychedelics. So yeah, breathing, you know, cutting off the head is, yeah, that wachuma, 
that are you know getting getting their head out um and you know connecting to nature is, is one way of doing that you know obviously it relaxes the nervous system it connects us to something bigger than us is beautiful um you know earthing has all sorts of benefits um uh, for me like getting out of the head singing and dancing are like have become extraordinarily medicinal for me you know because like you know trauma energetically like overwhelm or trauma is like this you know it's this kind of like closed fits you're like this you're you've got tunnel vision and you know if i if i start to get too heady um yeah it can kind of just sort of like unlock that and you know just moving with it and yeah i mean one thing i'd say about being stuck in 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 thoughts as well because that is a, a very common trauma response um you know, in somatic experiencing, it's called riveting. So, you know, whenever we're overwhelmed, our, you know, we're kind of like, we're stuck in that free state, right? So we're actually frozen in that time, in that moment. Um, and, you know, things might, you know, we may be, you know, objectively safe, you know, not in any danger, but certain things may remind us of that danger or whatever. So we're still on, on a kind of nervous system level, mind, body, uh, riveted to this that that overwhelming event. So for me, again, like it comes back to like shaking, tremoring, because um, our nervous systems are going like fuck, 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 you know. So we need to like discharge that energy, and it's a very like, and it's an automatic like that shaking and tremoring. It's an automatic process. Like you don't need to think about it. Um, in fact, you need to like turn down the thinking mind in order to uh, kickstart that process. And psychedelics can, you know, can quite effectively turn that volume down. But then, yeah, it's about moving, singing, being with people, being in nature, breathing, meditating, you know, realizing we're not our thoughts. They're just objects that come in and out of consciousness. Um, yeah, all those things. All of the uh, psychedelic, uh, sorry, psilocybin journeys that I've been on and ceremonies that I've been in, I've been in a lot. Um, I always tend to find there's a, a phase in the journey where I begin to move. Um, so I find myself, uh, doing yoga actually more often than not yoga or Qigong, um, which is interesting because the first time I, I did actually the first time I, I found myself doing yoga was during an ayahuasca journey and I'd never done yoga. <laughs> so that was kind of weird. And it's a wonderful thing. So actually, when you're with the medicine like that and you start to move, you you feel yourself releasing blocked energy. You know, you absolutely, you fundamentally re relax and release. And, and actually, uh, certainly in my experience, I find myself relaxing muscles, micro muscle release, you know. Muscles that you, you you think you're releasing when you're sitting down or lying down, but you're actually not, because as as we all know, there there are layers and layers and layers of tension. It's only when you get into deep meditation or a shavasana, for example, after after yoga, where you're reminded usually by the yogi to even just you know plant your spine or plant your coccyx on you know into the ground, melt into the ground is is what you're encouraged to do, and it's only when you uh, find yourself in these specific situations that you you realize you are holding tension in your body, which is linked to a trauma. So, yeah, okay. Um, what 
So what's your thought then on um, the fact that mushrooms have been around since the dinosaurs, um, as have all other plant medicines, um, and of course have been criminalized and uh, kept away from people. But now uh, the pharmaceutical companies are on to this um, and they're synthesizing this and turning it into a, into a little pill. So now suddenly the, me- the media is talking about how accessible it is. I saw something else online from uh, Motherboard, which is uh, the tech vice platform, and they were saying that psychedelics are a billion-dollar business, but no one can agree who should control it. I can't help but chuckle. <laughs> I'm like, how the hell are you going to control the mycelial network? <laughs> it's bigger than you. Yeah, I just want to, like, you don't find trees going, yeah, exactly, like, trees wandering, like, who the hell is going to control this network? You know, it's... Uh... Yeah, I wonder what your perspective was. That. I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be all uh, anti-establishment here, but I, I think it, it, it's... My point sings to um, an obvious truth, and that is that these medicines have been around for thousands, if not millions of years. Um, they were once put in a, a naughty box where no one was allowed to to use them to open their minds to heal themselves and now suddenly now it's a, now it's going to be available in a pill form owned by a pharmaceutical company this stuff's going to start getting whacked out on a daily basis uh, all around the world and of course as a result we've got um countries and and american states currently one by one legalizing psilocybin aren't they yeah, it is an interesting thing. I mean, the same thing happened with marijuana. Yeah. You know, it started off as, as recreation or as medically legal and became recreational. And there was a certain debate about ownership and about actually the quality of the marijuana and, and what this commercial influence would have on it. So, yeah, I mean, definitely curious to get your thoughts on that, Liam, as far as how that would affect you and your practice. Yeah. How do you, how, just bolting another question onto that, how yeah. do you select? the psilocybin that you work with uh so the the first question of like that tension between these two worlds right um so yeah i kind of frame it like on the one extreme you've got the like idealistic hippies and then on the other hand you've got the evil capitalists and as with most things like the middle way is the way right there's and they both have good points so you know the on you know the idealistic hippies. They're like is that you know they're saying rightly that these uh, experiences are sacred. That um, they're you know a lot of them are just natural as well. That they're you know I mean they shouldn't certainly shouldn't be criminalized. You know it's it's ludicrous. The whole war on drugs was you know it's on record saying it was political. It was to clamp down on two groups of people that were threatening at the time black people and hippies, you know, the Black Panther movement and the and the counterculture movement. So, I mean, that's on record. Um, that's not a conspiracy theory. So, yeah, it was, uh, and the whole war on drugs has been a huge failure in terms of uh, helping people with addiction or crime related to, to drugs or and reducing youth. It's been a massive success in, in its actual purpose, which was, you know, criminalizing those two groups. So, yeah, so there's, you know, you've got, you know, these substances have been around for a very long time and are sacred and, you know, have this whole, like, framework around them, you know, in, in like, with mushrooms, like the Mazatec, especially in Mexico, 
um, and it's ceremonial and it's community-based and it's all these things that we're not very good at doing in the West. Um, so, yeah, they're like, you know, let's, you know, you know, we need to have that model as well as part of the picture. And then you've got the, the, the evil capitalists and the other extreme saying, well, these are new medicines and we have the model that we have in the West, which means that if these are going to be, because, you know, we'd, we'd, yeah, it, this is much like a deeper process. Psilocybin, these new psychedelic medicines are being framed as a therapeutic process, you know, in a much deeper way than weed is. So, you know, it, it necessarily has to go through a much more stringent uh, process with the FDA, this whole rescheduling process. And that's extraordinarily expensive and just requires a, a ton of money. So, you know, that argument is saying that we can't actually bring these new medicines to market without going through, without using the, you know, the capitalistic model. Um, and then there's an argument on that side as well, that business can be a vehicle at disseminating these new medicines. So, they both have points. Uh, for me, the, the main thing is like the kind of, you know, and I think they'll coexist as well. So you'll have like the McDonald's of the of the market, which is like the compass pathways or whatever, mind med. And then you'll have the farmer's markets, which are more like guys like me and everything in between. And there'd be something for everybody. They have to coexist. They have to coexist. Um, yeah, I think so. It's going to be an interesting. Uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting space to watch. Um, uh, but, but you know, I mean, from my perspective, I'm just I'm just chuffed uh, that it's finally it's on the agenda because uh, you know I don't I don't mind admitting my own healing journey and certainly my battle with addiction and trauma uh, was uh, hugely helped by um, psychedelics. Um, hasten to add, not in this country, uh, whilst I was in Central America, um, where they're legal. But uh, ayahuasca, wachuma. Um, DMT and uh, and psilocybin all played a huge part in in helping me. And this was all in guided um, ceremonial um, uh, circles where where you know it was it was responsibly handled by some amazing people who, who, who are very close to me to my heart now. I mean, you you look at uh, as you say Peter Levine, but also Gabon Mate, who's a who's a famous um, uh, psychiatrist psychologist. Isn't he? Uh, who uses plant medicines um, and ayahuasca to treat addiction? Lots of people say uh, an ayahuasca journey is, is it can be likened to ten years of therapy. Um, so, I, from my perspective, I'm just I'm really happy it's on the agenda. And uh, I guess fair enough if it's going to turn up as a synthesized pill, um, as long as it's being prescribed in the right way. This would be another question I have for you, though. Of course, do you worry that we're going to get to a situation where I could go to a, a psychiatrist and say, you know, I'm depressed. And instead of getting my Prozac or whatever psychiatrist, um, whatever pharmaceuticals they give you, I get a prescription for psilocybin and then I just go home and take psilocybin. feels to me like that's we're losing a, a real controlled and, as you mentioned earlier, sort of almost sacred ceremonial perspective and, and respect yeah, exactly. So this this is the nuance, you know, and I think the, the main issue for me with these two camps is like who's capturing the narrative, who's owning the narrative. And what would be a real shame is if that biomedical model 
captures the narrative and like this is the way to do this experience and it strips it strips the experience strips the process of its sacredness um that would be a real shame but maybe there's an argument that you know just like people maybe have a starbucks and then was like and then you know like oh i want something a bit more like you know you know a bit more sophisticated you know maybe maybe you know it will open these, you know, these big companies like Compass Pathways will open the gateway to people um, and it will bring, you know, it will help guide people towards more, um, yeah, like a different model. So, you know, maybe there's that argument as well. Um, but that is an issue. Yeah, that is an issue that everyone is, con- everyone in this space, myself and others, are concerned about, you know, um, that, you know, are we... You know, and there's an argument as well against the kind of capitalistic model that, you know, is this model the right model to disseminate these experiences when many argue that the sort of like the capitalistic, hyper-individualistic model where we're encouraged to constantly compete and compare you know, those things that led to a lot of our mental health issues to begin with, is that the right model to disseminate these these new these new experiences? You know, so that's, I think, a legitimate uh, argument as well. Um, but it's also worth keeping in mind that, that you know, these these, um, you know, these companies, they're working on very specific patient groups. So uh, for psilocybin at the moment is treatment resistant depression and major depressive disorder, MDMA, it's PTSD. You know, so when these, if when they're rescheduled, it will only be targeting those groups, you know, and maybe over a long time, it will be broadened out. But it's worth keeping that in mind as well, that, you know, once these go through the rescheduling process, and it's not like it's going to be opened up to everybody, that may come, but that's way, way down the line. I suppose I'm just thinking ahead. In my own experiences um, with psychedelics has been very community based. So, and uh, every shaman you taught on the planet would would say that set and setting are, are two of the most important uh, aspects of this kind of journey. And I, 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 both of you guys, I know, seen fantastic fungi, the the Netflix documentary. <laughs> Excuse me, but they they talk about. Um, they talk about the same thing there that the the part of the experience is is um part of the healing process is is who you're with and where you are and of course that sings to exactly what you're doing w- with this um with this new consultancy because you are that guide um which i think is um is is epic and i suppose uh, do you are you getting the idea already that um that there are more and more of you popping up is it uh is the guidance uh i don't want to say market because it devalues it but it is is the guidance industry um suddenly in exponential growth uh yeah there are more there are more retreats and guides popping up which is yeah good in some respects but also presents issues as well because it's not regulated so it's kind of wild west um, you know, I'm a member of the, the Guild of Guides, which is a fairly new organization in the Netherlands that um, is trying to, we're working to promote, uh, yeah, well, there's a code of conduct, but also, yeah, 
promoting or well, the advocacy of, of safe, responsible guidance and what that means. So, you know, no promising healing, no like saying, well, we will treat your depression. Definitely none of that. Um, you know, because you, you're seeing like uh, microdosing services, you know, promising healing with microdosing. It's just like, you can't, you shouldn't do that. It's irresponsible. It's unethical. Um, so, yeah, there are things like the Guild of Guides coming up now. Um, there are also, there's a lot of well-intentioned people in this space whose hearts are definitely in the right place, but don't understand trauma, don't understand the psyche, don't understand basic therapeutic approaches and models. Um, and, you know, they just had a few healing experiences or, you know, healing experiences or positive experiences themselves. I think they're ready to hold space for others. Like it's a whole... You know, it it requires it requires a lot of personal work to do this work. You know, like there's like all the kind of intellectual stuff, you know, understanding case studies that I've been doing, and and you know, ther understanding therapeutic models, internal family systems, somatic experiencing, Jungian psychology, Groffian psychology. You know, reading all the scientific papers and protocols, and you know, all of that sort of stuff. Experiential, obviously, like working with the substances that I'm working with extensively. Um, but like really importantly is me having gone through my own deep personal process with my own uh, internal family systems and somatic experiencing therapy and meditation and yoga and, you know, time and space and, you know, mental, I do mental group work as well. You know, like all of this sort of stuff, because these are very, uh, these are very sensitive, uh, delicate spaces to hold and you need to be aware of what you're bringing into that space. You know, there's there's a lot of potential for transference, counter-transference, projections. You know, so if the guide isn't aware of, of his own his or her own processes, then that has the potential to create all sorts of issues. You know, and we, we're seeing it, right, because it is the Wild West. You know, unfortunately, there are cases of... Uh, seems predominantly men making sexual advances or like, you know, not respecting boundaries, let's say, uh, in, in in that space, which is, you know, just, especially if we're working with like, you know, sexual trauma, all that sort of stuff, like, yeah, so like going through deep personal process, doing our own work, you know, shadow work, whatever, however you want to frame it is really important. So, yeah, it's like it's both an exciting time and a time to like pause and be like, mm, okay, we need to be really careful because all it's all it's going to take are a few people, one or two, like you know, big fuck ups basically to undo a lot of the the work that people in this space have been working so hard to to again like you know re, um, yeah, like re like recondition people's. Uh, or reframe people's attitudes towards psychedelics. You know, it's been done very slowly and safely. So people in this space who take this very seriously are like, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And the guy, uh, the guild is a is a wonderful idea. But I, um, as you alluded, everyone's a life coach, right? Uh, so yeah, especially here in Bali. Yeah, yeah. yeah we have our uh, fair share of DIY shaman. So um, as you may or may not know, another. 
another uh, weekly segment of How to Die Happy is Be My Guest. So uh, up on our website, we have uh, a little page uh, with the, li the list of forthcoming guests, and there's a link to uh, a really cool little voicemail feature that people can use. So we've encouraged people to, we're encouraging people to leave messages um, for the guest. So you get to be their guest for a very short while. And we've got a couple of questions um, from audience members. So I'm just going to, I'm going to, we're going to go through a couple. Still got a bit of time, haven't we? So we do indeed. Okay. Be my guest. Let's talk, my friend. Let's talk, my friend. This is not the end. Man, I love this. Dwayne Forrest, everyone. Yeah, uh, wonderful. Got give a wonderful shout musician who did all of our music uh, for nothing but peace and love. So thanks, Dwayne. Question number one. Hi, guys. This is Pete from the UK. I'm interested, please, to know, what is the active compound in psilocybin and how does it work? What does it actually do to the brain? So psilocybin breaks down into psilocin. That is the compound. Um, and, yeah, it works on the serotonin system, specifically the 5-HD2P uh, receptor Um and what it, what essentially it does is it reduces blood flow, deactivates the default default mode network, or reduces blood flow to the default mode network. And the default mode network is a brain hub that is associated with the ego. So in that sense of self, that sense of I, sense of personality, continuity. Um, but the ego is also a set of defenses as well. Uh, and that acts as a filter. So what it accepts, it puts into conscious awareness. And what it doesn't accept, it it puts into the shadow, the unconscious. And, you know, depth psychology and modern neuroscience both show us that the vast majority of the psyche is unconscious. So by, you know, dissolving that filter, by deactivating that filter of the ego, the default mode network, it just allows unconscious material to surface. Um, and that's where a lot of the therapeutic potential can be as well. Um, because, you know, that, you know, that union idea of the shadow, these things that we're unaware of, that's really what the shadow is. All the things that we don't identify with, whether, whether good or bad, you know, it could be painful experiences. It could be, uh, you know, our lighter qualities, our playfulness, our love, our silliness, you know, whatever, tenderness. Um, so they're just things that are, yeah, in our shadow and we can bring them, bring them to the surface to, to witness um, because those shadow aspects are controlling us. You know, they're, they impact um, what we think, what we believe, you know, our belief systems, um, who we're attracted to, who we're not attracted to, situations that we're drawn to, whatever it is. So, you know, that's the path of the Jungian, again, idea of individuation, of, you know, reaching wholeness. It's bringing all those unconscious parts into conscious awareness. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, that's a big part of my process as well, helping people realize that, you know, we all have a shadow. We all have these, these parts of us that we, we don't identify with. And it's, again, back to, like, cultivating that sense of open, compassionate curiosity to meet that, to really welcome those things. Um, so, yeah, that's a mechanism. 
you know, dissolving that filter, the default mode network brings stuff to the surface. Um, that's what it does to the brain. Obviously, like there's the whole like body element. Yeah. But, yeah. Okay. Nice. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the same guest. Actually, he's he's left a couple of questions. So let's let's hear from Pete again. I'm guessing it's different for everyone and maybe case specific. But is there a general idea of what to expect from the psilocybin experience? <laughs> Whoa, I can answer that one. <laughs> uh, but go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, basic short answer. Because, you know, uh, so Stanislav Grof, Stanislav Grof is uh, a guy who I've studied extensively because he has overseen more psychedelic sessions than anyone else. You know, he's had a 60-year career studying psychedelics as part of a therapeutic process. He's in his 90s now. Legend, Stanislav Grof. I recommend everyone check him out if they haven't already. You know, and he frames psychedelics as non, including psilocybin, as non-specific amplifiers of the psyche, which means that they, it's bringing, it's bringing whatever's in the psyche to the surface to be witnessed. And again, like, you know, the psyche is vast. Um, so we're always working with, yeah, our own individual psychic material. Um, so it's always going to be unique. So like, it's always going to, it's going to be different from person to person. And even in the same, with the same person, it's going to be different experience to experience as you may have experienced yourself, you know, we can also, so it's, you know, it can have um, like the shadow, the unconscious parts that are related to our biography, but it can have transpersonal, you know, that's kind of, you know, the, the Jung's idea of the collective unconscious that our, our conscious, our psyche isn't just the personal unconscious, it's the collective unconscious that kind of connects us all. So we can, it can tap us, you know, help us tap into that, um, you know, beyond our concepts of space, time, all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it can be for, yeah, it, you know, like literally there's a whole universe's worth of potential experiences. Um, common, I mean, common ones are, yeah, stuff from your, from your personal history coming to the surface uh, to be witnessed. So there's that. You can have like all sorts of birthing experiences, like being reborn, stuff like that. Um, yeah, you can, you know, I mean, the mystical experience, quite sometimes, not a common experience, but what can happen is that you can have that sense of unity of like being like connected to everything else. You know, and that points to various ideas of like, yeah, and that can be a very, can feel like a quite, for people, quite a religious, spiritual experience. Like that becoming one with everything. People say it's like God and and God being the closest word, not like, you know, angry bearded man in the sky wagging his finger, but like God, God being the, the best word we have to describe this like spiritual experience of oneness. That idea that like, you know, beyond the material world, beyond the quantum world, we have this sub-quantum, like infinite, timeless, formless, like ocean of of consciousness or something like it. Um, 
and yeah, the unified field kind of points to that, and God kind of points to that, and consciousness kind of points to that. You know, and it's like, and the Hindus have been onto this for a long time, obviously. You know, it's interesting for me to see the, like the world like, and the Buddhists and you know the world like spirituality and science overlapping now with like quantum science, kind of corroborating a lot of these ideas that have been around for millennia. But yeah, this idea that you know there's this common ground that things spring from and return to. But yeah, different different things from like psychology, philosophy, uh, quantum relativistic physics. Uh, yeah, they all they all kind of point to that. So you can have a direct experience of it. Yeah, a flavor of it. And uh, I, I've ta- I've talked to a number of um, uh, monks, if you like, Buddhists and and uh, and Hindus who will, and I've talked to them about plant medicine, and and they will. They will say you can get to the same um, state through med- meditation, uh, but they will admit that, that, that that's through uh, a, a very, very deep uh, and constant practice. Um, in fact, all, all all of the masters from from all around the world, and actually in all the ages, they all they all use some very common practices. It and it is breath centered, of course, breath and meditation. But they will admit that it um, it's not going to come overnight like that um so uh, i'm not suggesting that that psychedelics are a hack in that regard um but they certainly do get they do sort of they're like a laser cut key aren't they um more often than not in the right setting it's like yeah the way i frame it is like there's you know there's different ways up the spiritual mountain religion spiritual traditions you know whatever they are they all kind of like came from the same source for me and they all end at the same place and they're just different ways of 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 going up the mountain what psychedelics can do is like less like a helicopter trip for a brief visit to the top they'll be like oh okay like that's the point and it's not like you still need to go up the mountain because that's how you learn the lessons you know you don't you don't, you know, you don't learn the lessons of the, that great journey, that great hike by just briefly visiting it. You still need to go through that process, but it can at least give you experience of like, oh, so that's what it is. Right. Got it. Now I know. Now I got to do the work and, and sticking with your mountain metaphor. Uh, these things are all best done with a Sherpa, um, mm. which of course is Liam. <laughs> well, I could talk about this with you until Christmas 2025, but we've uh, we've had more than an hour of your time, Liam. So um, uh, it is with regret that we have to call this a day, man. This is our first episode. We are we're we're riffing this. We're making it all up. Um, we've had some technical issues because of a submarine chopping the fiber optics up in the ocean somewhere around here uh, so thank you so much for your patience but also thanks for your, your time and energy liam i i really do enjoy talking to you we've had a number of these conversations and i can just i could just sit listening to you for a long time I, next time i need to write some of this stuff down because you, you give me some um, some more points of, of people to check out and uh, and watch but for anybody who uh wants to know more about liam you can find out um on our website there's also a link to his website brighter pathways um so he's london based but uh quite obviously due to regulations uh the uh, psilocybin work is done in another country nevertheless he's in london uh and he can chat to you presumably via the miracle of the internet like we've done today um 
And yeah, thanks, Liam. Been epic. Very welcome. Yeah, thank you, Liam. It was a pleasure. We do want to give you the chance just to to leave people with any closing thoughts, maybe since the name of the show is How to Die Happy. Hmm. I'm just ripping this. I don't know, but maybe you could tell us what makes you happy, Liam. What do you think? Oh, lots of things. Yeah. Dancing, singing, uh, being with friends, you know, community, having those those loving relationships where you can just reveal the the full spectrum of your being. I think those relationships are so treasured and sacred. Um, so for anyone who has those people in their lives, I really, yeah, encourage encourage people to to really yeah treasure that and maybe drop them a line just letting them know how much you appreciate them so uh yeah i think i'll I'll close on that